morning, everyone. I would uh, certainly be amiss if I did not begin by thanking you. Um, your prayers have been evident and answered. God is good, and um, we praise him for his, both his power to heal and for uh, the skill that he's given doctors and nurses uh, Everything in this process has just gone so much better than we could have expected. And uh, just so grateful to be back with you. Fran and I were talking this morning about the fact that we've only been you know, gone for a week, and it seems much longer than that. Um, but praise God, here we are. I probably could have done this standing up, but I would have paid for it later. So uh, we're just going to take it slow. And uh, as I have mentioned to some of you, one of the advantages of this is that I get to play Charles Spurgeon for a, a morning. Um, he had terrible cases of gout, and so there were times when he'd come in and preach sitting uh, with, his, with his feet up. I don't have my feet up this morning, but um, maybe there will be another occasion for that. Who knows? But God bless you. Thank you so much. It is so good to be back with you. Uh, let's take our Bibles uh, and return to the Gospel of Luke. Uh, we're picking up in uh, chapter 13, verse 31. It'll be verse 31 through the end of the chapter, verse 35. Just at that time, some Pharisees approached, saying to him, Go away, leave here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I reach my goal. Nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day. For it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills its prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. Behold, your house is left to you desolate, and I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. As we follow the goings-on between Russia and Ukraine, I find it very difficult to know who and what to believe. Maybe you're in the same boat. It seems that Though we have access to more information, and it is more immediately available than in any previous conflict, there is less confidence in the truthfulness of what we hear. One of the things I've heard that has caught my attention is that both Putin and the president of Ukraine are very concerned with the possibility of assassination. In fact, there have been reports that the president of Ukraine has already survived three separate 
assassination attempts, and that Putin is so paranoid that when he meets with his own advisors, he takes great precautions to keep a significant difference, uh, distance rather, between them. There are photographs of him sitting at one end of a long table and those with whom he is meeting at the other end, some seems like 20 yards away. But as they say, it's not paranoia if they're really after you. And there are reports of one particular Russian oligarch putting a bounty of a million dollars on Putin's head. As we say, it's impossible to really know what's going on, but I wonder if you've ever thought about how you would live if there were people who wanted to kill you. What if people wanted to kill you because of who you are and what you believe and the Lord that you worship and the message that you share? It would be a shame if we never thought about that question. We have brothers and sisters around the world who have to think about that question every day. They have to wake up with the knowledge that because of who they are and what they believe and because of the Lord that they worship and the message they proclaim, there are those seeking their lives. You and I may never have had to answer that question, but Jesus certainly did. And you see that question here. You see the answer here at the end of Luke chapter 13. Jesus is surrounded by people who want to kill him. Herod wants him dead. Most of the Pharisees want him dead. Eventually, large crowds in Jerusalem will cry out, crucify him, crucify him. Jesus had to know how to live in a world where there were people who wanted him dead. And so there is an example that he's leaving us here. His example is important for us, not just when we face circumstances of persecution, but in regard to every circumstance that we face in this life. So I want to think with you today about what Jesus' example teaches us about living under the providence of God when there are threats to our lives and when we're facing trials and tribulations. But I also want us to think about the compassion of Jesus as it is displayed here in this passage, even toward those who wanted to kill him. And then I want to think a little bit about the response of the people to Jesus. Let's begin by looking at his example. Jesus gives us much more than just an example, of course. Jesus didn't just tell us how to live or show us how to live. He lived for us a life in our place, a life that we are unable to live. He died a death that we deserve to die, and he did it in our place. He bore in his own body on the tree the penalty which was due to us for our sins, so that everyone who trusts in him would receive from God the gift of being counted among the righteous. 
and indeed being declared righteous with the righteousness that he had lived. We now, because of what Jesus has done, are looked upon by the Father, if we have trusted in the Son, as having the righteousness of his Son. You see, often we focus in, don't we, on that last part of Jesus' life. His crucifixion and, and the resurrection. And it is, of course, perfectly appropriate to meditate upon those things. Easter is coming. Good Friday is coming. And we're going to be focusing on that. But here, if you've been following through in the Gospel of Luke, we know that there's much more that Jesus has done. Jesus is going toward the climax of his life in his crucifixion and his resurrection. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He even speaks here in our passage this morning about his goal. Verse 32, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I reach my goal. What's his goal? His goal is Jerusalem. His goal is the cross. He knows what awaits him there. And he's moving toward it. And in the next several chapters of the Gospel of Luke, we're going to find what occupied Jesus in his last couple of days of his journey to Jerusalem. And it's full of teaching. It's full of parables. But eventually he's going to come to Jerusalem and he's going to enter on the donkey and the crowds are going to yell Hosanna. And then not, far, not long after that, those cries will turn to crucify him. He knows what awaits him. That's where he's going. But that's the end. What about that previous life, not just his life of ministry over three years, but from the time of his birth, what was Jesus doing? He was being obedient to his father. He was keeping the law that you and I could never do. And in our justification, as we come to faith in Christ and repentance to our, from our sin, God applies to us the righteousness of Jesus. And he looks upon us as if we have lived the life that Jesus lived. Perfection, without sin, in complete and total righteousness. This is what Jesus has done for us. If Jesus hadn't done all of that, then we would have no hope. But because Jesus has done this for us, because we have trusted in him and accepted his life and death in our place, his obedience and sacrifice on our behalf, because of that, his example matters. But it's not just the example. We're not those who want to disregard the sacrifice and resurrection of Jesus and just say Jesus came to be an example for us. That's really all he did. That's not the case. 
But his example is part of what he did. And the New Testament often points to the way that Jesus lived. And then says that believers need to take that into consideration as we seek to emulate our Lord at certain points of our own lives. And this is one of those places. Jesus is approached by some Pharisees. And he's warned in verse 31, Go away, leave here, for Herod wants to kill you. And we read that and we say, Huh? Pharisees are warning Jesus? I thought the Pharisees wanted to kill Jesus. Well, a lot of them did. There were a few who didn't. There were a few who seemed to understand what was going on. There were a few who were followers of his, almost secretly. But Luke doesn't tell us whether these particular Pharisees were sincere. Perhaps they were those who believed, or at least saw that Jesus was righteous and there was no reason to be plotting against him. Or perhaps... They just wanted to get him out of Galilee and into Judea where the Pharisees had greater influence and could exercise greater control over him. We don't know the motivation of these Pharisees who are coming to Jesus. But in any case, they do come to Jesus and they share with him a message. And the message is, get out of here. Run. Herod wants to kill you. And you see Jesus' response, beginning in verse 32. Go and tell that fox. (laughs) So much for Jesus, meek and mild. Go and tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I reach my goal. Nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. I'm going to Jerusalem. I know what's going to happen when I get there. And I also know that nothing's going to happen before I get there. Jesus doesn't make this explicit, but what he's saying is, my father is in control. And my father has ordained that my death, my sacrifice, will take place in Jerusalem. So Herod can't lay a finger on me because I'm not going to die, I'm not going to die a moment before my father has determined I will. And I'm not going to die in any location other than that which my father has determined, and that is Jerusalem. My job, then, is to perform cures and to cast out demons, and to proclaim the gospel, and I will do that this day and tomorrow and the next day, and then I'll go to Jerusalem, and then I will finish the work for which I came. My purpose is to die, and I'm not afraid of that. I was born for that purpose, but I won't die here, and I won't die at the hands of Herod. I'm going to Jerusalem, and there... I will be raised up. The confidence of our Lord 
in the face of the threat of Herod, and perhaps the veiled threats of the Pharisees, is astounding. He trusts in his father's providence. He is not afraid. He knows the purpose for which he has come, the purpose for which he has been sent, and he is determined to accomplish that purpose according to the will of his father. A number of years ago, one of the speakers at the Luzon Conference on World Evangelism, a man named Michael Ramsden, related the story of a missionary in a country where Christianity is illegal, where sharing the gospel is illegal, where giving a Bible to someone is punishable by law. This missionary and his wife were out in a rural part of the country, and his wife and he went into the nearby town, and the missionary went into the store to make some purchases and saw a man standing by that store, and the man standing outside of that store had a gun. And as the missionary went into the store, this man followed him in. The man got back to his car and began to drive away. His wife said, did you give him a Bible? And he said, no, I didn't give him a Bible. I don't intend on getting shot today. His wife said, I've been praying, and I think you should give him a Bible. And again, he says, I really didn't plan on getting killed today. And the wife began to pray. Lord, on the judgment day, may the blood of this man not be counted against me, who my husband will not even give a Bible. <laughs> and they stopped right there in the middle of the road and had a friendly marital disagreement. And as you would expect, the car turned back around. And they started driving back into town, and he gets out of the car, and he walked up to the man with the gun, and he handed him a Bible in the man's own language. And the man said this, Three nights ago in a dream, I was told to come here, and someone would give me the book of life. Thank you for giving me this book. Little side point. We hear stories like that. They're not rare. We're hearing a lot of that kind of thing coming out of the Muslim world. And I want you to note something about that. Even when God works in such ways, he works through his word. This man with the gun was not saved apart from the scriptures. God did not send an angel to proclaim the gospel to him. God sent someone with the Bible. That is always how God works. When you hear stories about these supernatural kinds of things happening, be listening for that 
be listening for that because that is what is in accord with the scripture. Now, there's a little bit more to this story because five years later, that missionary who gave the Bible to the man with the gun was martyred for proclaiming the gospel. Now, the reason that Michael Ramsden told that story was to make this point, that there are no countries that are closed to the gospel if somebody is willing to go there to share the gospel. If someone's willing to die to share the gospel. There are no countries that are closed to the gospel if someone is willing to give their life for the gospel. We often speak of countries that are closed to the gospel, and we think of those countries as places that no one can get into to share the gospel. But if one is willing to die, there is no place that one cannot go with the gospel. When Michael Ramsden stood up to speak, in fact, he said, I feel like a lion in a room full of Daniels, because at this particular meeting, It was full of people who had committed to proclaiming the gospel no matter what. They were ready to die. It's very similar to the scene that we see in the ancient church, in the Council of Nicaea, in which bishops and elders gathered together there at the call of Constantine. And if you had been there, you would have seen men missing eyes and ears and limbs, men with scars all over their body, because they have had lived through persecution. And they were willing to endure that suffering and even give their lives for the gospel. And just as there were men in the early church and women in the early church who were willing to do that, there are men and women around the world still. You read Hebrews chapter 11 and the great heroes of the faith. And you'll remember there toward the end of that chapter, this list of horrors that men and women of faith endured. Others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And there are men and women of God willing to face that today as well. At the same conference, the Archbishop, Anglican Archbishop of Nigeria, Archbishop Kwashi, 
Nigeria, right? Africa being one of the last places where the Anglican church is still faithful to the word of God. Archbishop Kwashi said this, I don't care how many times the Muslims threaten me. I'm going to die someday. I don't care. I'm going to proclaim the gospel until I've taken my last breath. And that, brothers and sisters, is the attitude of Jesus when he hears that Herod wants to kill him. He believes in the providence of God and he knows that he was born for that purpose. And he knows that he cannot be stopped or distracted from accomplishing the purpose for which he had come. And the same is true of you and I. We have been born for a purpose to glorify God. God has determined the number of our days. Nothing is going to change that course of our life. God is sovereign. What is there to fear? Why worry? There is freedom. There is liberty in knowing that there is no one who can take anything from you. When you have renounced everything, when you have determined to live a life worthy of the gospel, do you understand how absolutely free you are? Jesus gives an example of how to live a life free from fear. It's by giving up our life. By telling our Father, do with me as you will. That's not the only example that Jesus gives us. He also gives us a, an example of compassion. You see that in verse 34. Jerusalem. Jerusalem. The city that kills the prophets. And stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not have it. Note, first of all, before we get into what Jesus means here, note the object of his discussion. Who is he speaking to? He's speaking to Jerusalem, of course. But then he also speaks of, not to, Jerusalem's children. And so often when people come to this passage to preach or teach, They'll miss that, and they'll fail to make that distinction between G Jerusalem and Jerusalem's children, but pay attention to what Jesus says. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her, how often I have wanted to gather your children together. When Jesus is speaking to Jerusalem, who is, who's he speaking to? The leaders of the people. It is the leaders who want to kill him. It is the leaders who have put to get to death the prophets. It's the leadership who has stoned those sent to her. 
It is the people who are the children. And we're brought back, of course, to so many places in the Old Testament where God condemns the leadership of the nation because they are not properly caring for the people. They are shepherds, but false shepherds who do not care for the sheep. And that distinction is being made there. Jesus has come, he has called the people, and at every step along the way, the leaders of the people have said, no, don't listen to him, don't follow him. Of course, we're about to see that happen as Jesus enters into the last week of his life. He'll come into the city, and there will be great rejoicing. Hosanna to the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Palm branches will be laid down before him. And by the time the week is out, because of what the leaders of the people have done, those crowds change their tune And yell, crucify him. Crucify him. But Jesus says here that when he gets to Jerusalem, those leaders, they're going to treat him just like they treated the prophets in the Old Testament. They're going to reject him. But you see his heart of compassion, even in the face of that coming rejection. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. You've got to see what Jesus is saying there. He's using Old Testament language. He's using the language that God used for bringing the people of Israel under his protective wing. It's a beautiful picture. And Jesus is saying this about the people of his day. And one thing that Jesus does here, of course, is to proclaim his deity. He is identifying himself with the Lord God of Israel. Only God could say this and not be a delusional maniac. Who else could say? I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. Who else could use that kind of divine imagery of themselves? What insane arrogance it would be for anyone other than God. So Jesus is identifying himself with the Lord God of Israel. Only God could say this, and Jesus says it. It's a strong claim of his deity, but it is also evidence of his heart of compassion. Because the people he is saying this to, the people he is saying this about are exactly the same people who will reject him and kill him. That is his heart of compassion. That's why Christians have never sought vengeance upon those who have persecuted them. It's not that we don't care about justice. We certainly do. And we do all we can to seek justice for our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world. But we do so not out of a heart of vengeance against our enemies, but with a heart of compassion. A heart filled with the gospel desire to see people come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
It's that kind of heart that Jesus manifests here. He knows these people are going to reject him, and yet he longs for them to know the blessing of union with himself, the blessings of God's beneficence poured out upon them. You know, when you become a Christian, you begin to develop a heart like Jesus. You begin to have compassion for the lost. One of the signs that you are growing in the Christian life is that you begin to develop a Jesus-like compassion. You have a heart for the lost. You long for those who face an eternity separated from God to come into fellowship with him through faith in Christ. You cannot be indifferent to it. And so the way you live begins to show that kind of compassion. You share the gospel. You're committed to the support of evangelism and missions so that as many as possible can hear the message of salvation and come to faith in Christ because your heart has been enlarged with Christ-like compassion even towards those who would be your natural enemies. So will you examine your heart in this regard? When you examine your heart in regard to the Muslim world, do you find hatred, fear, vengeance, or do you find Jesus' heart of compassion? When you examine your heart in regard to those pushing the political and societal agenda of homosexuality and transgenderism, do you find a heart of disgust and enmity, or do you find Jesus' heart of compassion? When you examine your heart in regard to those on the other side of the political aisle, whose positions you believe to be detrimental to our nation and perhaps to your individual prosperity and freedom? Do you find a heart prepared for war with those you deem to be evil? Or do you find Jesus' heart of compassion? One of the things that happens when we come to faith in Christ is that his compassion begins to build in us toward the lost. And that's what he manifests here. But I also want you to see, before we end this morning, I want you to see the response of the people to Jesus. We might be tempted to refer to their response as indifference, but it's more than that. You really can't be indifferent to Jesus. You can either accept him or reject him. There's really no middle ground, and you see that in this passage. The Pharisees wanted him out of Galilee. Herod wants to kill him. The people in Jerusalem are going to reject him, eventually kill him, just like they did so many of the prophets of the Old Testament, just like they did John the Baptist. In other words, there's going to be a rejection of Jesus' person, and his proclamation, and his ministry. Jesus is speaking here to the religious people of his day. God-fearing people as they viewed themselves. They were people who knew their Bible. 
far better than most of us know the Old Testament. They were serious about their religion, and yet they rejected the Savior. And there is a message for us. We are God-fearing people. That's how we look at ourselves. We've got our Bibles. We're serious about our faith. Perhaps we'll enjoy a good theological debate now and then. But have we been embraced by Jesus? Have we come to him in repentance and faith? Have we acknowledged that his cross is the only way of salvation? And that if he is not our substitute for sin, we have no hope whatsoever. Do we trust in him? Have we put our faith in him? Do we treasure him more than anything in this world? Or is he something that we add on to our lives and we fill up for an hour and a half every week and then the rest of our lives we just go about our business without giving him another thought? Or is he our all in all? Do we really Crown him as Lord of all, because that is what he is. And that's what we desire him to be in our lives. The question that is pressed upon the people who originally heard Jesus say, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her, I have longed to gather you like a mother gathers her chicks. This is pressed upon us. Will we come to Jesus? Will we respond to him in faith? Will we hear his call to sinners or will we reject him? There is no in-between. We've also got to see this. He is more compassionate to us than we will ever be towards one another. He longs to see us saved more than we could ever long to be saved. In fact, he did not long for us to be saved. If he did not do that, none of us would be saved. Had he not gathered us to himself, we would not have been gathered. And so in the end, when somebody is condemned, it is not because there is something lacking in the compassion of Jesus. He cares more about the salvation of sinners than sinners care about the salvation of themselves. If we reject Jesus, in the end, it's entirely our doing. It is not a lack of compassion. And that is a very sober thing to consider. And that is something that we must consider. And what better time to do so than when we come to the Lord's table today? Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Father, you are the one who determined from eternity past to accomplish the redemption of a people for your own possession. And it was then in eternity past 
in counsel with the Son and the Holy Spirit, that you determined that you would do this, and you would do it through the sacrifice of your only Son. And when Jesus had come and lived the life that we could not, and when he had gone to the cross, and when he had been buried, you would raise him up on the third day, and he would ascend to your right hand, and your spirit then would take that which he had accomplished and apply it to each one whom you would gather to yourself. Father, those of us who are in Christ rejoice in this today. And we pray, Father, that you would give us Jesus' heart of compassion. That we would not simply rejoice in what you have done for us, but that we would desire with all our heart, Father, to see you do the same in others. Perhaps even today, Father, there is one here among us whom you are calling, one whom you are gathering to yourself. Oh, Father, bring that one to repentance and faith. Fill them with a love for Christ today. Father, fulfill your purposes. As we come to your table, Father, may it be a time of examination. And may each of us who are yours call out to you for that compassionate heart. This we ask, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to uh, stay up here as we conduct the Lord's Supper today. Gentlemen, Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem. We've spoken today about what awaits him there. What awaits him there is his purpose. What awaits him there is the cross. What awaits him there is suffering and death for us. That which we are about to partake of today symbolizes what Jesus is going to experience when he gets to Jerusalem. It is the giving of his body and his blood. It is what he has done for us. And so I am always of mixed emotion when we come to the table. 
because I want to rejoice in my salvation. And yet I understand the cost. I understand that when God sent his son, he sent his son to die for me. And if you have come to faith in Christ, and if you have repented from your sin, then he has come to die for you. He has come to die for all of those who will turn from their sin and trust in him. So perhaps as I prayed, God has been calling you today. Perhaps he has been gathering you. Perhaps you've never understood the extent of your sin and your need for a Savior, but this morning you have, and you want Him. And if you will turn from your sin, and if you will trust in Christ, coming to Him as your Lord, then He will receive you. And this table is yours to join in. If that is not who you are and you do not want Christ, then this table is not for you. And so please, we would ask that you not participate in this table. If you are in Christ, then this table is for you. There is no need of perfection because there is no possibility of perfection. But we are encouraged to come to the table in a worthy manner. And so I would encourage you as the elements are being passed this morning to examine your heart and to confess any known sin. And also do what we've been talking about today. Look to your own heart. Is there a heart of compassion in you? None of us have a heart of compassion equal with the heart of our Lord. And so the prayer of each of us, this day and always, ought to be, Father, make me more like Jesus. That would be a good prayer to pray as we come to the table today as well. John Vaughn, would you give thanks for the bread, please?